This is a GRDC podcast. As industry momentum builds for minimum tillage, increased reliance on herbicides and the potential for weed resistance, as many growers questioning how this practice could be affecting soil function. This concern has led to significant national GRDC investment over the past five years into the potential impacts of increased herbicide use on key soil biological processes. Hello, I'm Tony Crowley. Today's podcast comes to you from the 2019 Bendigo Grains Research Update event, where I met up with New South Wales DPI research scientist and project participant, Dr Mick Rose. Mick says that soil's biological functions are quite resilient to herbicide inputs if growers stick to label rates. When growers move to higher than label rates or if there is um, accumulation, especially of group B or group I herbicides, then there can be some minor impacts. But that resilience of the soil function means that even if there are minor impacts, if those herbicide residues are allowed given time to degrade and dissipate, then generally the the soil functions will bounce back. So it almost sounds as though there's no real issue there, but that's not the case, of course. No, well, I guess guess the the complexity lies in the vast number of different herbicide actives that are are available and the vast number of different soil types that we're cropping on and all the interactions that can then occur with different different weather patterns, different um, cropping systems. Um, And and it's very hard to generalise across the board uh, that all herbicides will, you know, never have any impacts on, on those functions or on, on, on crop growth. So I guess where we've moved to since then is we, we tried to benchmark across the industry which herbicides were probably persisting in soil um, longer and having a, a greater potential um, to affect crop growth. Um, so we conducted a couple of so- soil surveys in 2015 and 2016 um, in each survey, we looked at 40 different paddocks from around Australia, and what we found was that um, trifluralin uh, and diflufenicin residues were quite prevalent at sowing, which we weren't altogether surprised at because we know that they are generally more persistent than some of the other herbicides. But we also frequently detected glyphosate and its major breakdown product, AMPA, in, in probably... I think for glyphosate, over 60% of soil samples and AMPA, over 80% of the soil samples contained those residues. I guess from there, what we wanted to do was, was find out what the relevance of those residues was. So detecting the residues is one thing, but our instrumentation and, and lab gear now is so good at, at finding these chemicals that we're really getting down to minute quantities that we can actually detect in soil um, that may have no biological relevance. So what we set out to then to do was see if there were any literature values of of toxicity thresholds to crops Um, and we were surprised to find that that there really wasn't much of that information available. So actually putting those residue values into a context was quite difficult. So how did all that information affect your design of the research and trial? We have the capacity to develop those thresholds. We have the capacity to measure the residues in soil. Um, it's just a matter of whether or not we think that this issue is a priority. Um, and I, I think the science is there. Um, we can actually come up with guidelines and, and recommendations. I guess that's what the last couple of years we've been focused on. Um, and we've done a couple of glasshouse bioassays to develop indicative toxicity thresholds for glyphosate, 
for some of the sulfonylurea herbicides uh, for trifluralin uh, and another group I herbicide clopyrrolid. Um, so they're some of the chemicals that we've been told through feedback with, with growers and advisors that can cause issues um, in certain soil types and certain conditions. And then putting those together with, with literature threshold values that we have been able to find. And for things like the sulfonylurea herbicides, there are actually um, quite a few thresholds available for those because previously the only way to actually detect those sulfonylureas at such minute levels was to use a sensitive crop. The, um, the equipment in the lab just wasn't, wasn't good enough. That's not the case now. We're actually able to, to measure those levels um, using our gear in the lab. So what were the key research outcomes or the key messages that you delivered to the growers who attended the update? The key message was that one is that soil biological processes are generally quite resilient to herbicide inputs uh, when they're used according to the, to the label. There are residues uh, in soil at sowing of, of winter crops. However, generally, probably in the surveys that we conducted, less than 10% of the paddocks had residues that have the potential to cause issues for the crop. And of that 10% of, of soils or paddocks, most of those uh, issues would have been resolved by planting a tolerant crop. For example, we had probably six out of 40 sites which had measurable sulfonylurea herbicide residues that could have caused issues for legume crops, but in uh, four of those cases, cereals were planted, so the problems avoided. Um, and, and in at least one of the cases where a legume was planted, um, a, a lentil variety with tolerance to, to the group B herbicides was planted. So generally growers are actually, and advisors are actually addressing those residue issues um, quite well at the moment. Um, but there's always cases such as 2018, uh, which, was, which was very dry, where we might be seeing more persistence of herbicide residues into the following cropping season. And I guess that's where we think we can, we can do better in, um, in providing tools to growers to, to predict or estimate what residues might have carried over and then what, what can we do about that. And the main recommendations for growers? I think the key, key recommendation is probably um, a, a, just a reminder that currently the label is the best guide that we have um, to avoiding those issues and really making sure you stick to those label recommendations and paying particular note to where there are clauses about the minimum amount of rainfall or moisture that is needed um, before planting a, a susceptible or potentially susceptible crop into um, soils where there might be residues carrying over and really making the point that, that moisture is the key driver for herbicide persistence in most cases. So don't underestimate the potential um, for, for carryover and um, yeah, following those label, those label guidelines is, is the best we've got at the moment. But I think we can do better than that. And I think we can, um, I think the, the science is there to improve on those recommendations. Um, and I guess that's where I'm hoping that we can move more towards that, um, so that so the growers can make more informed decisions regarding um, which crops they're planting, um, flexibility for rotations um, and, and confidence that you're not going to see damage in, in your crop. 
Dr Mick Rose, research scientist with New South Wales DPI, discussing a GRDC investment on the potential impacts of increased herbicide use on key soil biological processes. And you'll find a copy of Mick's research update paper on GRDC's website. I'm Tony Crowley, and you've been listening to a GRDC podcast.